Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. Luke chapter 4, let's jump there. We're walking through this book of Luke. Luke wants us to know the real Jesus. That's his goal. He wants us to to know who this Jesus is, to understand him, to have confidence that he is who he says he is because the implications of this Jesus, it has huge implications for a life. If he is who he says he is, that means a lot for you and I. If he's not, he's crazy, he's a fool, we shouldn't even be here this morning. We have to wrestle with, do we believe Jesus? Do we believe the Jesus of the Bible? That is Luke's goal. He is brought us up in the life of Jesus. He's taking us, he's taken us through Jesus out in the desert, being tempted by the devil and presenting Jesus as the new Adam, right? The first Adam came, faced temptation, fell. Because of that, all of human, all of human race is thrown into chaos and into depravity. And, and Luke presents us with the new Jesus, the new Adam that has come and withstood temptation, trusting God and now comes out of that with the power of the Spirit to show us who this God is. Last week, we had Jesus in the synagogue reading reading a passage, and after he reads a passage from the Old Testament, basically saying, that text has just been fulfilled. The Messiah is here. To which everyone was like, all right, yeah, we can get behind that. But then he went on and told them, and by the way, your kingdom that you have in mind is different than God's kingdom. It's a kingdom where all are included in. Different race, different ethnicity, sinners are welcome to come to this table. It's not just for the Jewish religious elite. And he ticked a bunch of people off. We keep going in Luke's narrative of Jesus and continue on the story. We're going to see three separate stories this morning. And just kind of appear one after another. It can almost be like, well, that's just kind of random. Luke's just starting to throw some random stories in. Here's what I would say. If we step back... And look at all three of these stories. They have one thing very particular in common. Let's see if we can, we can figure that out as we go. Verse 31. And Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Okay, similar to last week. Probably everywhere he goes, he gets invited to teach in the, in the synagogue. And that's what he's doing again. And they were astonished at his teaching. Once again, when he teaches, what's the response? Whoa. For his word possessed authority. So he would teach and they would say, man, this is different. This guy is different than every other teacher we've heard. And there's authority about him that he carries, not in his arrogance, but just in the way he talks and the words that he say, this guy is different. And so Jesus is up preaching, let's look similar to this. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice. Now, again, let's put ourselves in the situation. You're, you're here listening to Jesus teach, and all of a sudden, from the back corner, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Now, awkward moment. The Bible takes for granted the the spirit world. 
Demons, we find demons in the New Testament, they're called unclean spirits, evil spirits. When Satan fell, the backstory here, Satan was one of the angels. Most people think from, from, the, from the Bible that he was like the music director up in heaven. He decided to rebel against God, took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion. They are now Satan and the demons. And the Bible will talk about this, just takes for granted the existence of the spirit world and evil spirits and demons, right? I love the text here this morning because what better to talk about our two-year anniversary than a good demon sermon, right? <laughs> now, when demons would show up with people, and I believe demons still exist and they still possess and affect people, never in the Bible, though, do we see a demon possess a true believer. We're not told as Christians to be careful about being possessed by demons. We're not, so, so we can go all weird and, and, and crazy as we talk about the demon thing, but nowhere in the Bible are Christians possessed by demons. But the Bible will talk about demons, and Jesus interacted with demons a lot, just like he does here. But if you're a believer, you should not fear a demon coming over you. Here's what Colossians 1.13 says about us in Christ. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So if you, by faith, have placed your faith in Christ for salvation, you are in this new kingdom of light. You've been delivered from this kingdom of darkness and transferred into this kingdom of light, a new kingdom. And here's the thing about demons. All throughout the Bible, when they, when they come, and, and even today, if you read people that do exorcisms and some of that sort of thing, demons recognize authority. And so Jesus is up talking. He's preaching. The demon that was inside this man recognizes authority and therefore cries out. And look what he cries out. What, what are you going to do with us? Like, here's what, the demons know their time is coming. They know. They know the end will come. They know they will be destroyed. And here's the question, okay, are you going to come and kill us now, Jesus? And so he cries out. So verse 34 again, he says, what have you to do with us, Jesus and Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now stop right there. Interesting. When Jesus was on earth, very few people really knew who he was. They thought he was a good teacher. They thought he was leading a rebellion. I would even argue most of the disciples until Jesus dies and resurrects were still a little bit iffy on like what's going on here. And I know that because after the resurrection, we have this account where a couple of disciples are after the crucifixion, they're walking around they're like, well, we thought he was the Holy One, like we thought this was going to take place. And Jesus comes up walking beside him. He's resurrected. They don't know who he is. He's like, so what's going on here? And they, most of the disciples, I don't believe, really quite understood the significance of who Jesus was until afterwards. But one of the things that always does is demons. They recognize authority. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. So Jesus talking to the, the demon, not the man. Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, thrown the man down, he came out of them, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? Like, what is this? Verse 
For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. They listen. And reports about him went out to every place in the surrounding area. Interesting. When this conference, Jesus doesn't have to ask the demon nicely, hey, would you mind to please? No. What's he say? Come out of him. And the demon's like, okay. Why? The demon understands authority. He knows authority. And Jesus speaks with authority. And then out of this, here's what Luke said. That reports about him, about Jesus, start to trickle into surrounding places. Like, here's the deal. If this happened this morning, right? And I hope it doesn't. Please, no one take it upon your, your liberty to jump up and start screaming at me. And I immediately said, you know, come out of him. And then the guy was like, back to normal. Like, the word would trickle out, Right? So I imagine the Judean news leader the next morning, right, says, front page, man drives out demon in front of congregation. Like, here's why this is important. Because one of the things that Luke notes that throughout his gospel, and I believe that Luke is writing to a skeptic, to someone that is not just an easy believe person. It's just like, oh yeah, Jesus, I'll take him. That's really wrestling with this. Luke writes his account a few years after the life and death of Jesus. And here's what he says about his count. To write his narrative of Jesus, he says he goes to eyewitnesses. So once again, Luke goes, he travels to this village. He says, okay, tell me this story again about this demon. That ha- tell, tell me what happened in the synagogue. When Luke writes his message, writes this gospel, there are still people alive that would have been in that room. Had this have been totally made up, they'd have said, no, wait a second, wait a second. No. I was there, that's not what happened. Again, Luke wants us to have confidence that as a physician, as a historian, he has done his due diligence, that he's presenting to us the real Jesus. Let's move on, verse 38. And he arose and he left the synagogue. And he entered Simon's house. Right, so going, going for the, the, uh, the meal after, after the synagogue. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. Okay, so let's, let's understand this. So Peter invites Jesus to his house, and Jesus comes to his house. Simon's, Peter's mother-in-law was sick. She had a fever, and it doesn't sound like it's just like, oh, she's running a temperature of 101. Like this is some type of sickness, a plague that, that is been with her for a while. It's, it's going to end badly. And it's interesting, and maybe this is just coincidence. It says, and they appeal to him on our behalf. Notice who it doesn't say appeal to Jesus. Peter, right? Imagine this conversation. Hey, Jesus, so all these people want you to go heal this, my mother-in-law here. But here's the deal, Jesus, if you just want to take her on home to glory, I... <laughs> I'm all right with that. I mean, bless her heart. You know, she's, she's, lived, a, she's lived a good, godly life. Like, I, Jesus, I think it's time to, I, I don't know how the conversation went. But someone appeals to Jesus and says, hey, can you help, can you help Peter's mother-in-law? And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, again, Luke wants us to know the real Jesus. He's careful in the details. He's a physician. Luke has worked with people that have been sick. Do you notice a key word there? Immediately. 
Like here's what, Luke's not saying, yeah, Jesus, he comes and prays over. Then a few days later, she was up serving everyone. And no, here's what he says. She was sick. She had a fever. Jesus stood over her, rebuked the fever, and immediately she rose up and began to take part in the Sabbath preparations. Now, one thing that you and I skipped over that I love about Luke, and this should be an encouragement to us, you didn't even recognize it. Notice who the main character of this story is right here. Did you catch it? A woman. Remember I told you, before Jesus comes on the scene, women are property. Women are less than. And one of the things Luke wants us to see is this upside down kingdom, this reversal where women used to be down here as property below men, and now there's a reversal, not that they're above, but they are equal, that we're creating God's image with equal gifting to advance the mission of God. Luke wants us to see that. And all throughout his gospel, he will go from sinners to women to non-Jews, and he will purposely pull out stories to make his point. He could have chosen 50 stories of people that Jesus healed. He very intentionally put that in there. Now verse 40. Now notice Jesus speaks to this woman, the fever, the fever leaves. Verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who, those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many. So there's others there that had demons, and demons came out, and, and they said, crying. So the, the person that, and the demons happened to cry out to Jesus as he's driving this demon out, you're the son of God. Remember, demons can't lie to Jesus. They understand authority of Jesus. You are the son of God. But he rebuked them. He said, be quiet, and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Jesus isn't ready for them to say who he is. Now, again, we got to point out here, notice in this, in verse 40, it says, many who had come and sick with various diseases. Now, why did Luke include this? Because he could have, again, he could have chosen lots of different healings that Jesus did. Here's what he wants you to see, that Jesus will go touch the leper. That Jesus will go touch a woman who was bleeding and, and the blood would not stop. In that culture, those people were viewed as less than. They were viewed as sinners. Like, here's what we would have thought as good Jews. When we saw someone sick or lame or diseased, we would have thought, yep, that's their sin. And we would steer around them. We would go around them because they are unclean. They are sinners, and we are not like them. Luke wants you to know, no, Jesus went to them. He touched them. He healed them. So Luke chooses someone that was an outcast, very, very particular here, to show them that Jesus would go engage them. Now here's the question, what do all three of these stories have in common? Did you catch it? Authority. Why did Luke include these three stories in the beginning of chapter four, after Jesus has said he is the Messiah that's come to Bind up the brokenhearted, take care of the poor. Why? He wants you to see that Jesus has authority. He has authority over the supernatural, over demons. 
One of the things that would make the Pharisees very mad is when Jesus would say he has authority to forgive sins. So Luke wants you to see that Jesus has authority over the supernatural and the physical, meaning sickness. The point of these little passages is that we would see that there is authority and that Jesus is that authority. So let's talk about authority a little bit today. Here's the reality. Whether we like it or not, we're all under authority. Correct? And if, you, if you're like, well, not me, okay, then try this. Get out of your car today and go driving 80 miles an hour down Walnut and see if you're under authority. Right? If you own a business, don't pay taxes for three years and see if you might be under authority. And, and some of you, this is always fun, because a lot of young people here is like, well, I'm going to start my own business. I went off to answer to anyone. <laughs> yeah, right. Go to one of these business leaders and say, are you under authority? The reality is we are all under authority, but here's, if we're honest, part of us, we don't like authority. I mean, we like it whenever it keeps all the people that we want to keep somewhere, but especially when it steps on what we want to do, we do not like authority. We want to, in our nature, push against authority because authority communicates there is something bigger than me, and I don't like that. We are under authority, but instinctively we don't like it. Now, some of you may be rule followers, so, so, quick, so let's say you're driving home late at night in Springfield, 1145, you come to one of those little side st streets where there's a little stoplight, and I'm not talking like national, I'm talking one of those side things. You roll up there, your light's red, and there's no one around. How many of you rule followers stop and wait for the green light? Raise your hand, nice... How many of you, like me, just look and roll through, baby, huh? Come on, loud and proud. I have some police officer friends. Ignore that last conversation, comment there. Yeah, why? Because somewhere deep inside, I don't want to sit at a light with no one there and just be controlled by that piece of electricity. It's what set the Unabomber off, too. That's a whole different conversation, by the way. Authority communicates to me I am not the center and I don't like it. We must understand this morning that there is authority above us. There's governmental authority, children, you have parents that are your authority, you have teachers, you have bosses, but whether we like it or not, the God of the Bible shows himself as one who has authority over all. And hear me, even if you do not recognize his authority, he still has it. and we don't like it. I don't like someone to say, you can't do what you always want to do. And there's a rebellious part of me that wants to push against that authority. Now, side note, as much as I want to be authority, I really don't want to be that authority because I will make a mess of my life. Like I, can't bear the weight of being my highest authority. But the Bible communicates and what Luke wants to see about Jesus, that there is authority that is above all and it is God. And, and there's some hard truth in here coming up, but we need to hear this. It's important that we hear this. Here's what the book of Daniel says, chapter four, verse 34. Kind of backstory here. Nebuchadnezzar was the king. 
he kind of got proud. He's like, I'm the highest authority of all. And God's like, yeah, no, you're not. Makes him kind of sick and dumb. He's actually like eating grass like an animal for a time. Well, finally, God restores him back. And here's what he says. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. Like I, I wasn't crazy anymore. And I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. He's learning his lesson here. Look what he says. For his dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Like I realize, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I realize I have one little generation here, and I might be a king, but God's keeps going. Verse 35, you're not going to like this. And all the inhabitants of the earth, you know who that is? You, me are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say with his hand or say to him, what have you done? The Bible is very clear to communicate to us that there is an authority above us. This authority was not created by something he always has been, and I can't wrap my mind around that, that he lives forever, this generation to generation to generation. The Bible teaches us this authority exists in three parts, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And these three parts of this highest authority rule over all. And compared to this authority, what's it say about you and I? We are counted as nothing. Which we don't like that, do we? I kind of want to be the point. I want to be special. So he has authority, the, the Bible shows us, overall, and he does according to his will. He does what he wants to do. Now there's part of us, there's some of us in there like, uh-uh, I don't like that. Right? I don't, I don't like a God that doesn't give me complete control of my life to do whatever I want. I don't like that God. But there'd be some of us here, and I know some of your stories, that we've recently hit rock bottom. And the reason we've hit rock bottom is we made ourselves our highest authority. And we said to ourselves, you know what? This sounds good. I think I will do this. And it destroyed us. And maybe you, hitting rock bottom, like Nebuchadnezzar would say, you know what? I need to raise my head to the most high because I have made a mess of my life. And you tried to live on your authority. And like Nebuchadnezzar, you've maybe said, I lifted my eyes to heaven and praised and honored him who lives forever like it's not me. So the Bible will teach us we have this God, this three-part Father, Son, Spirit, that's above all, and you're really not going to like this, Psalm 115, 3, here's what he says, here's what it says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that pleases him. He does whatever he pleases. Like, here's the deal, God doesn't need to ask your permission before he does something. He's the highest authority. That part of you that just cringed, that's the rebellious part of you. 
that wants to be your authority. See, authority is great when I'm talking about all the other people, right? But when it comes to us, the rebellious part of us wants to be our own authority. And when some of you say, well, here's the deal. God can't intrude on my free will. Um, no, he can. He can. All throughout the Bible, God comes to Pharaoh and says, yeah, here's what's going to happen. You're going to do this. Abraham tried to pass his wife as his sister. I bet that went well for him. Um, the king comes takes his sister. He's going to sleep, sleep with, his, with Abraham's wife. He's getting ready to, and God's like, uh, an angel comes. No, you're not going to do that today. God can step on your free will whenever he wants. Now, I'm not saying that when you turn out of the parking lot, God is determined, all right, you're going to Dairy Queen for lunch, and you have no choice. No. But this idea that I have my own free will, I can do whatever I want, God just has to hope. No, God can do what he wants. Now, in his grace, he gives you some power for decision. But he is above all. He does what he pleases. Now, some of you are you're, you're struggling right now. Like, wait a second, Hood. I, what happened to this gospel stuff? <laughs> right? What happened is Jesus loves you, the cross? Yeah, that works. That's coming in, and, and hang with me here. The part of you that's just like, I just want to walk out of here right now. Hang with me, because this might, in fact, understanding God's authority might, in fact, be a warm blanket over you in just a few minutes, if we'll understand this. Luke wants to show us that there is this God that has authority. The Bible's clear about that from the beginning, and that Jesus has been granted that authority by the Father. And when Jesus comes on earth, he comes with one who has authority. That's why he'll say when he's getting ready to send out disciples, all authority has been given to me. Now, it's a whole other sermon. I don't have time to unpack this. Jesus comes fully God, fully man. Philippians tells us that he comes as man. He empties himself. He lets go of his authority. He enters the temptation in the garden as a man, letting go, humbling himself, letting go of his authority. He comes out unscathed, full of the Spirit, and now God gives him authority. So when Jesus comes and he does what he does all throughout the gesture, here's what he's going to say. My authority comes from the Father. It's been given to me. Here's what Colossians will tell us about this Jesus that we're studying. He is the image of the invisible God. Like, you want to see who God is? Look at Jesus. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. That's why in, the, in, the Genesis, in, in Genesis it says, let us create man. It's through Jesus that all things were created. In heaven on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Verse 17. And he is before all things. We must know this about the Jesus we're studying. That's what I told you. I want you to know the new Jesus because for whatever reason, in the past 20 years, we've changed Jesus into this hemp-wearing, loving hippie guy. The walk around his sandals saying, peace to everyone, I love you. Now, Jesus will cross boundaries that were never crossed. He will go talk, and we're going to see that. He will love people where they are. He'll talk to the outcast. But it doesn't change who he is as his authority. He is before all things. And in him, 
all things hold together. Like you as authority will not hold all things together. And he is the head of the body, the church, that's us, corporately. He's on top. He's beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Like God gave him all this fullness. After he enters the, the temptation, comes out, and then verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. That's us, people that were distant. He's going to reconcile. He's going to bring near, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's what Luke wants you to know, that Jesus is authority, that when he speaks, the demons listen, they obey. When he rebukes a fever, it leaves. When he quiets a storm, it listens. Like it's one of the things in the other gospels, the disciples are amazed, the storm's coming on a boat, they're like, oh my gosh, we're gonna die. Jesus stands up, he's like, ah, get out of here. And here's what they say about him. Even the wind and the rain obey him. Like they've seen these other things. They've seen the demons and the sickness and all that. And now they see the storm. They're like, who is this guy? Even the wind and the rain obey him. When Jesus speaks, there's authority, which is why when he says, it is finished about your salvation, it's finished. You don't have to earn it. Jesus has authority over all. He's not a hippie. He's not a gentleman. He doesn't care if we like what he says. He's the head of the body, the church. Hear me, he's the head of you. Whether you acknowledge his authority or not. Now as believers, as if you're here, many of you this morning are coming and saying, I'm a believer in Christ. Let us understand this. We must understand if we are, understand if we're saying we are a believer. So one day, if you got in baptism, just like these people, and you said, I said, who are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? You said, Jesus. Here's what you just communicated. I am under authority of who? Not myself, Jesus. I'm under authority. If that's been you, then the reality is that Jesus' authority applies to all aspects of our lives, all of them. Again, I'm talking to Christians. If you've sat here and said, yep, I'm following Jesus, it, his authority applies to all aspects of that. Well, how do we know? How do we know what he wants us to do? How do we know his authority? Well, good question, the Bible. The Bible is God's revealed word to humanity. The God's word, the Bible teaches us who God is, this character and nature of God, and then we see ourselves in light of him. So you have the Bible, you have the Old Testament was simply pointed to Jesus. It's helping us know this character and nature of this God that created everything and though humans rebelled, set up a plan to bring Jesus, the Messiah, into the world. The New Testament, the first four books, we're studying one of them focuses on Jesus, this Messiah. The rest of the New Testament points back and says, because Jesus has come, now here's how to live. The whole point of the Bible is Jesus. It's not you. The Bible's not God's love letter written to you. 
It's a book about God pointing us to Jesus. So if we want to know how to live under the authority, we don't have to go ask our friends. We don't have to go read a self-help book. We simply go to the Bible and say, God, teach me how to live under your authority, which is why you should read the Bible. One of my concerns, um, and sometimes with our younger generation, is like reading the Bible, quiet time, whatever you want to call it, sometimes becomes more about you doing something every day for 20 minutes than it does about learning about who God is. And oftentimes, we gotta go somewhere very public to do that so we can make sure all of our Christian friends see us. And it's very much about you and not about learning about this God of the Bible. The point of reading your Bible is not to fulfill some moral, religious obligation or duty. It's to know who God is. So if you wanna know Jesus, if you wanna know who this God is, if you wanna know the authority that you've said that you're underneath as a Christian, you must know the Bible, which is why, um, men and women, how many of you just got done with our Hebrews Bible study, like teaching you how to study the Bible? Raise your hands high. Yeah, hands everywhere. Why, hopefully, why did you get into that? You said, I want to learn how to read the Bible for myself so that I can submit under that authority. That's why you did that. Some of you need to get into that next spring. Like some of you, which is okay, some of you, you've never been taught, but when you read the Bible, it's like, you know, Bible roulette, you throw it up to a passage, you read it, like, okay, that's sweet, God's proud of me now. You may need to learn. How do I study this thing? We'll have that again in the spring. Dr. Hardwick's going to lead in the fall the theology class teaching us who God is. Maybe you need to jump into that. Maybe you need to educate yourself. Because, again, if you're a believer, you have said... I am under the authority of the Bible. Jesus is above all. So Christians, the Bible is our final authority on life. It's not you and what you want to do. And I'm talking to myself. The Bible is my final authority. So here's the question. Am I submitting to the Bible? And here's what I know about us. You know that thing that just popped in your head? You're like, oh yeah, that. Here's what Jesus would call you to do. Submit, repent, let go. And the Bible speaks very plainly and it's hard truth to people that have said that they're, oh yeah, I'm in the faith, I'm Christians, but then the pattern of their life is something that's quite different. Again, I'm not talking like I make some mistakes and I'm quick to repent, like that's good. That's where we should be. But I'm talking like, oh yeah, I identify with Christ and then I do my own thing. First Corinthians, I could choose a hundred, I'll choose one. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And again, by unrighteous, he doesn't mean I made a mistake this week. He means those that have said I'm not under authority or is not submitting to authority. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. 
He's writing to believers here, and here's what he says, and such were some of you. Like, that, that's right. Can we raise our hands? Is that not our story, that list? Okay, it's my story. And such were some of you. But you cleaned yourself up, got to church. Oh, no, wait, that didn't say that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, declared righteous by faith in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So I read that list. Probably many of us are like, check, guilty, this week. Now, and again, we read this one. We, want, we always want to go to like the, the sexual, moral, the homosexuality bit. Did you see uh, greedy? Here's the difference in an unbeliever and a true believer. And I'm saying, I'm saying a, quote, lukewarm Christian when there's no such thing. Someone that says they're in the faith, but they're really not. Is someone in the faith sees this list and says, okay, that's me this week. And here's what they say. Well, I don't care. Someone in the faith will see that list and say, okay, that's me this week. Jesus, I thank you that you've died for that sin. Let me push away from that. Let me repent. Let me get people around me to help me fight this. Spirit, take control of my life. That's the difference in a believer and unbeliever. In the church. I'm not talking on the outside. I'm talking in the church. The overwhelming mess of the Bible is a call for us who have said that we're under the authority of Christ, a call to repent. We're not allowed to change Jesus to fit our taste. We're not allowed to change scripture to make it more culturally acceptable. Where the Bible speaks, we have authority. So Christians, here's what the Bible invites you to do. Forgive. So that part of you says, no, I can never forgive them. Here's what you're saying. I have authority. I'm not, I'm not saying it may not be a difficult journey you're gonna have to go on to forgive. When the Bible says a man will leave his father and mother, will hold fast, be united to his wife, marriage, and then the two shall become one flesh. Believers, Jesus would tell you that's the design. Let that be your authority. Don't step outside of that. And it's not rules for rules sake, it's for your good. The question now, will you submit? Will you repent underneath that? The New Testament filled with pastors about generosity. Right? Be generous. Have, have this mindset that it's not me, it's not my stuff, that all that I have, every bit of it has been given to me. You realize that everything you have has been given to you. I got to sit across from a couple this week just talking about like they realize like everything they have is just, it's a gift. It's been given and then that changes the way they think about what they have. Your money has been given to you. Your intellect has been given to you. Your talent has been given to you. Like your good looks, like it's been given to us, all right? It's been given to you. And so a believer says, because it's been given, because there's a higher authority in me than me, now how do I live in response to that? And I'm open-handed. 
Let me be honest with this for a second. I was talking to Michael this week. Michael does all of our books. Here's what he said. According to, if you'd kind of take the 10% rule of what we give as a church, and I'm excluding college students for this. Although what's encouraged me is I've talked to many of our students. They are giving, which is awesome. I encourage you to keep doing that. If you take out our college students from our adult population, based on kind of giving 10% of your income, the average salary per person in our church is 17,000. Now here's what I know, because I know most of you and what you can, I don't know what anyone gives. You make more than that. Which here's what tells me, at some level, we have authority. Like there's still some part of us that as new believers, as we want to say, no, this is mine. This is my money. But the Bible would say, no, it's simply been given to you by God. And now we have the question, do I submit underneath that? Now, some of you are like, well, come on, that 10% thing, that's like legalistic Old Testament stuff. You're right. You know what the New Testament model is? Sacrificial generosity. <laughs> I'll go back to 10%. That's easy. But the invitation of God is sacrificial generosity to say, come on, I dare you. Give money away and see if there's not a contentment, a peace, and a joy that undergirds all of your life. That would be the call of the New Testament. And so as Christians, again, people who are not, I'm not talking to non-Christians, right? I'm talking to people that have said by faith, you're in. The call of the Bible is to repent under this authority that where the Bible speaks, we have authority. And one of the biggest dangers is compartmentalized obedience, right? The Bible speaks against something right here that I want to do. And here's what I say, well, I'm not doing this, but I will make up for it over here. What is your posture of submission? Is it one that understands you're under authority? Here's the good news. We have an opportunity to submit now. Here's what Philippians 2 says. Because Jesus had emptied himself, therefore God has highly exalted him, like he's the top, and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every tongue confess, or every knee should bow, in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. Now hear me, this is a hard truth. Whether you acknowledge Jesus or not, like if you by faith would bow your knee and say, Jesus, you're above all, you're included in the family. But here is the message of God, that if you don't do that here, like if you live a life that says, I don't want God, that will also be your eternal state, a life without God. You will get what you want. But that one day, every one, maybe in this life, maybe after, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're under authority. Now here's the question, where does his authority come from? Or not, not come from, like, why does he have this authority? Why does he tell us to submit? Here's what I'd argue, it comes from his love, not his wrath. It all comes back to how you view God. If you view God as a good giver, 
of good things, then his authority becomes this warm blanket to you. Because you realize his authority is good. It's for your good. If you view God as this taker that just likes to punish everyone, then his authority will seem unloving and cruel. Parents, with your children, you have authority over your children? I hope so, right? Is your authority exercised out of your love or out of your wrath? Parents, let me hear you. It's love, right? Like that's the heart of a loving, gracious father or mother. You exercise authority over your kids all the time. Where does it come from? Your love. And so what I want us to hear this morning is, yes, God is above all, whether you like it or not, whether you believe he's good or not, but he, the Bible would say, is good, and therefore his authority can be trusted. And all of a sudden, these commands that seem like, oh my gosh, how could I ever do that? They slowly, as you trust God and believe he's good, they, those commands slowly become joy. Like, let me be honest. The first time, I was, in, I was like 19 years old in college. And I started, I got, I got a job down in Missouri State when I went here making money. I heard a sermon on giving and tithing. I did not want to do it. No part of me wanted to write, and it was probably like $22 or something like that. Like no part of me wanted to write that $22 check. But here's what happened. As I started doing that, joy started to surround me giving. And so now when Emily and I give once a month to Hill City Church, it's not like, oh, I got to write this no, we see these baptisms, we're like, yeah, that's why we give. Right, the commands, what happens as you're a follower of Christ, these commands start to become joy. Now, hear me, if you're a new Christian, you can't sit back and say, well, I'm just gonna wait until I'm joyful about those commands till I follow them, that doesn't work. You may have to walk into some things that you don't wanna do, but then as you do, I, and I've seen it over and over again, joy will come into that. So Luke wants us to see that Jesus is above all, that he is above all, that he has authority over all. And so we're two years, celebration, Hill City Church. Here's what we as a congregation need to know, that we are under authority. But look around, is God not good? Huh, I mean, come on, look, we celebrate today, look around, is, is God's authority not good? Because as elders, to live under that authority, we've made some hard decisions. Like we give a lot of money away, more than most church plants ever do. Here's the reality. We don't give that much. We got another staff member. We got a little bit cooler lights and a good fog machine back. Like, but because we're under authority, we're trying to lead as one under authority and look around. God is good. We don't have to make it all sexy for God to work. Right? Preach his word, be true to the gospel, and lives will be changed. He is good. Now, corporate Hill City, there's a day coming when we're going to have to really step into that. Say, God, we're scared right now, but we believe you're good, and we believe you have authority, and we have to enter this place that is a little bit uns unsteady and uncertain. And the invitation will be Hill City. Trust me, I'm good. I'm above all. So Christians, if 
you come professing Christ this morning, may you leave today understanding that you're under authority, that you place yourself on that authority. And as the Bible reveals sin to you, may you submit, may you repent. Unbelievers, here's what you need to know. You don't have to clean yourself up to get to God. The salvation is offered free to you no matter how bad you are. Like he's gracious, he's loving, he's kind, and he's made a way for us to be saved. And it doesn't include you getting your act together. It includes you, like King Nebuchadnezzar, bowing your knee and saying, he is in charge, not me. There's the good news. So as we come this morning to celebrate communion, here's what we're doing in Christ. If you're a Christian, here's what you're doing. When you come this morning, you dip that bread in the cup. Here's what you're saying. Jesus, I'm under authority. So may we, before we receive communion, may we evaluate ourselves.